0: Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Promack. On today's show, new reports on Russia's disinformation campaign and Goldman Sachs' big trouble in Kuala Lumpur. But first, the global refugee crisis goes global. According to the United Nations, there are now around 60 million people in the world who've been forced to flee their homes due to war or to escape persecution. If that were a country... It would be the world's 21st most populous and larger than places like France or the UK. It also would be one of the world's youngest, as estimates are that over half of the world's refugees are below 18 years old. To be clear, the word refugee is very specific. It means those who have fled and found protection. So that wouldn't include current asylum seekers like the ones at the U.S.-Mexico border right now. It also doesn't include migrants who cross borders for work, nor does it refer to the masses of internally displaced people or people forced to move from one part of a country to another. And while the numbers that 60 million is staggering, the largest since the end of World War II, it's only expected to grow, particularly as climate change causes or exacerbates natural disasters and anti-immigrant sentiment deepens in developed nations. Plus, we seem to be on the precipice of a global economic slowdown, particularly in emerging markets, which could create the sorts of political pressure cookers that lead to political instability or political violence and thus more refugees. The bottom line here, even if the numbers remain static at that ridiculously high 60 million, we're still talking about an entire generation of people who are particularly prone to persecution and limited opportunities in their new lands. It's Generation R, and almost no one seems interested in catering to their needs. In 25 seconds, we'll go deeper on this with Axios reporter, Steph Kite, who led a big weekend package on the global refugee crisis. But
1: first, this. Every day, about 20 million questions are answered on SurveyMonkey. And those answers help people around the world be better at their jobs, whether they want to improve their customer experience, recruit and retain a stellar workforce, or learn which ideas, products, or campaigns will be a winner. Find out why 98% of the Fortune 500 trust SurveyMonkey. Visit SurveyMonkey.com slash pro rata today.
0: We're joined now by Axios reporter Steph Kite, who wrote about the global refugee crisis in a big package on Axios over the weekend. So, Steph, one of the things you wrote was that as the number of refugees and other displaced people keep growing, the burden is falling more on developing nations than on developed ones like the U.S. Why is that?
2: Well, there are kind of two reasons for that. First of all, there's just the logistical and geographic reasons where some of the major crises are happening right next to these developing nations. And so naturally, they're going to become the host to the refugees who are fleeing from these conflicts, especially as many of these refugees are probably going to be leaving on foot. It makes sense that they would go to the nearest nation, and that's why sure. we see such high numbers of refugees in Turkey and Pakistan and Uganda Lebanon and Iran. But at the same time, we're also seeing this kind of anti-immigrant and anti-refugee populism come up in the U.S. and in European nations, which has also led to these countries hosting fewer refugees.
0: In Europe, I kind of get it a little bit more in the sense of those are places that have had big refugee populations come in. You you think countries like Germany, you mentioned Turkey. Mm -hmm. We, though, in the U.S. haven't. Is this just basically Trumpism? What's the explanation here? Most people don't see refugees in their neighborhoods or on their blocks.
2: I do think President Trump is a big reason for what we're seeing in the U.S. He's now cut the refugee cap two years in a row. We only let in a little more than 22,000 refugees into the U.S. this last fiscal year. And I talked to a few people, Eric Schwartz, who was a former assistant secretary of state for Population, Refugees, and Migration. And he told me that you really can't overestimate what President Trump has done when it comes to this issue and his rhetoric and how that's changed people's perspectives and the way they see immigrants in general and even refugees. So I think that is a big issue for why we're seeing this kind of cutting back on the number of refugees we're willing to take in. And a lot of that goes back to President Trump and his base.
0: Speaking of the U.S. and refugees, just quickly, you spoke uh, to somebody uh, from Bhutan who settled in Portland, Oregon, I believe. Just to put a quick human face on this, could you just briefly tell his story?
2: His name is Sam Subedi, and I got to talk to him over the phone, and he shared his story. He's originally from Bhutan, as you mentioned, and he spent almost 25 years in a refugee camp in Nepal. He essentially grew up there, went to school there. His younger sister, was born in a refugee camp. There was a nationwide eviction of uh, certain people within Bhutan at the time. And so they were forced to leave their home. And then they found refuge in this refugee camp in Nepal.
0: He ends up in Portland, Oregon.
2: He does. So the Bush administration ended up taking in tens of thousands of these Bhutanese refugees. And he was one of those. And he told me about how it was quite an extensive vetting process. It's not an easy thing to become a refugee in the U.S. There are a series of interviews that you have to go through. He jokingly, some told me over the phone that he felt like he was the most vetted person on the planet, (laughs) even more so than Justice Kavanaugh was what he told me on the phone, kind of laughing. So he came to Portland, Oregon. And since then, he told me he with just $10 and a plastic bag, but he's now kind of made it for himself. He's bought a red hot Mustang, as he told me, and his (laughs) home, and he's married and has kids and is now super involved in the refugee and migrant community in Portland.
0: Let's push this thing forward a little bit, or or maybe back one week, which is the UN last week signed its first ever, what it called its Global Migration Pact. Uh, They were in Morocco, but the US didn't sign it, right? And, And also weirdly, neither did Switzerland, which maybe it's its own show why Switzerland is on that side. Why'd the US not
2: Again, I think this goes back to President Trump and their decision not to want to commit to taking in a large number of migrants. There are a lot of small parts within the compact that the Trump administration were not fans of. And so they refused to sign that. I think, again, it's just if you look at the theme throughout the past two years of saying that other nations need to pull their own weight in these international issues and also kind of this negative stance and rhetoric towards welcoming migrants from other nations.
0: You know, it's interesting because that kind of goes to kind of broader Trumpism, which is whether you want to say it's America first, it's anti-globalization, right? And, and the right. argument, a argument outside of compassion and empathy for helping refugees is that it is this global crisis and the more people globally you have who are poor, poorly educated, under persecution. Can you speak to that a little bit, kind of, you know, macro? When you think of the global refugee crisis, what's kind of the global threat to it, again, beyond just the, the human horror of it?
2: Right, now, as, as you said, this is, especially the fact that this is imposing on host nations that are already facing their own challenges with developing, that this is going to cause more poverty and possibly more conflict, more internal issues. And yes, that does play out on the global stage. And so I think for that reason, just the sheer number of people who are in this displaced situation, you're also looking at a generation of children who aren't being educated in the way that most children are, The refugee children are only given education up to a certain point. And so that also leaves them susceptible to, as some people might say, even extremist ideologies. If they're not being educated, if they're not integrating into the societies that are hosting them, that could raise
1: a whole host of issues down the line.
0: Steph Kite, thank you so much for shining a light on this. My final two right after this.
1: Did you know that 57% of customers say they'll permanently stop using a product or service after just one bad experience? And that costs about five times as much to acquire a new customer versus keeping an existing one? SurveyMonkey can help you get valuable feedback from your customers before they walk out the door. To learn more, visit SurveyMonkey.com slash today.
0: Now it's time for my final two. And first up, the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee today released two new reports showing that Russia's online misinformation campaign was much broader than previously understood. So two big things to know. First, the Russian efforts did not slow down after the 2016 election, nor even after they became publicly known. Instead, engagement rates increased in terms of both frequency and scope. Second, big U.S. internet companies like Facebook, Google, and Twitter allegedly made it more difficult for the Senate Intel Committee and researchers to do their work, including by shading the truth of what was really happening on their platforms when explaining it in congressional testimony. Expect to hear a lot more about this in the coming weeks and months. And finally, prosecutors in Malaysia today filed criminal charges against Goldman Sachs related to the 1MDB scandal. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, here's the shorthand. 1MDB is Malaysia's state investment fund which allegedly funneled hundreds of millions of dollars to the country's former prime minister. Now, as you might imagine, that's a pretty big political scandal in Malaysia, and Goldman's role is said to have been facilitating that illicit transfer via a big bond sale. In fact, a Goldman banker has already pled guilty in the U.S. to bribery and money laundering. Now, the bank overall, though, is steadfastly using this rogue employee defense, arguing it was a couple bad actors, not institutional deceit. Soon we'll have to see how that defense plays in a Malaysian courtroom. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Adam Grassi and Tim Shovers, have a great national maple syrup day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.